1: Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen to our show today on Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. I practice law in Salem, Massachusetts. And my practice concentrates primarily on the representation of injured workers and their families in workers' comp cases involving on the job injuries. And if you've listened to prior editions of Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters, you know we have focused on a variety of injuries and illnesses and trial techniques and practices as they relate to workers' compensation cases. Today, however, we want to discuss something that we have not discussed in the past on workers' comp matters, and that is the independent medical evaluation, the IME. If any of you have handled workers' compensation cases, you know that as a part of every case, is the independent medical examination usually conducted by the insurance company? And today we have a special guest. It's Dr. David Cooper. Uh, Dr. Cooper is an orthopedic surgeon from the Knee Center in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. He is one of the first orth- was one of the first orthopedic surgeons in his area to introduce knee replacements and arthroscopic surgery. Dr. Cooper has treated orthopedic. Issues for thousands of patients over the years, including military veterans, NASCAR drivers, professional athletes from A- NHL, NBA basketball, Major League Baseball, et cetera. Dr. Cooper, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much, Alan.
1: Doctor, I've read literally thousands of independent medical evaluations over the years, and uh, these reports range anywhere from a page and a half to 20 pages or more, but I'm going to make a confession. I'm the first to admit that when I open the envelope and it contains an IME, I immediately flip to the back page and I read the conclusions and uh, I've seen my colleagues do the same. Uh, what's, what are the elements of a good independent medical evaluation?
2: Well, I've often said that, a, that an IME is really nothing more than you do on your own patients, except it's probably more in terms of history because many times... A lot of these injuries in workers' come. no one's doubting that someone's got an injury, but that um, the causation factor is most important. So you really have to take a more comprehensive history. One thing I really believe is that I always do my own history. I know other guys, other doctors um, have nurses, physicians, assistants, but I really think it's important to look at the file and see if the doctor took the history because uh, you can really judge from the person you're examining, maybe a degree of credibility, uh, how they talk to you, and getting the exact mechanism of injury, how it happened from that person. So I think that's so important to actually have the physician, the IME doctor, take the history. And if I were to see an IME report where the history was done by someone else other than the doctor, I would look a little skeptically at that, that that guy is just trying to run, a, you know, run more people through doing IMEs and taking the time to do it himself. Physical examination. Again, we do them on our own patients, but uh, uh, what you sometimes do on the IME would you do? Would you do these Waddell signs because sometimes the insurance companies actually ask for that—that that you do look specifically for non-organic signs.
1: Let's talk and, about Waddell signs for a minute now. Doctor sure. Gordon Waddell is a physician from the United Kingdom who published a series of articles in spine uh, a magazine or journal uh, out uh, describing what, five, four, five, six?
2: Actually, eight.
1: Eight tests yes. that a doctor can perform for the purpose of determining what?
2: The, it was originally designed to determine non-organic signs. In other words, it was not designed uh, to determine a psychologic diagnosis, commonly malingering. A lot of people mistake that. You cannot say someone is a malingerer If they have a positive Waddell sign, basically non-organic disease is what it's referred
1: to. Now, are Waddell signs or tests or maneuvers uh, for back injuries only, or can they be used for uh, extremity complaints as well? Well,
2: actually, they originally were only designed for low back complaints. They were not originally designed for anything else except the diagnosis of low back pain. They have since been expanded for anything. But that wasn't the original design.
1: And just very briefly, I know there are eight of them, but give us an idea of what those tests and uh, maneuvers might be.
2: Well, very simply, uh, just uh, the, the first one, is always, we see is t- uh, tenderness just to in the skin lightly. In other words, you just t- touch someone's skin lightly and they react or say it hurts a lot. The only thing that hurts when you touch skin lightly would be advanced RSD, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, or if you obviously had a skin burn. So when people just react to a lot of pains, touching the skin lightly, that's one of the signs. Uh, Non-anatomic tenders, you know, total body pain. Um, The one that's always done, and sometimes it was always referred to as a positive Waddell sign, was just pressing down on the top of the head, and then people say their low back hurts. That's only one sign.
1: It's not supposed to hurt, is what you're saying.
2: Well, it's not supposed to hurt. Even people with severe disc herniations and and cervical disc herniations, they don't hurt. Um, one, of my ropa- fa-
1: my, one of my favorites, at least when I'm either cross-examining or taking direct examination of a doctor, is the straight leg-raising test in the lying down position as opposed to the seated position. What is, what is that designed to tell you?
2: Well, the straight leg-raising, and it's interesting you mention that. I'm giving a, uh, actually a talk on medical signs out in Las Vegas in February where we're going to go over the tests, show them on a person, and then put up uh, slides of why a test is positive. But what a straight leg raising test is, is, you, is when you lie someone down and you lift the leg up, you're putting tension on their sciatic nerve. And when the sciatic nerve gets pulled, it pulls the nerve root down. So if you have a disc herniation in the back, you actually are pulling the nerve root down into the disc, allegedly irritating it. That's, how a, that's what a positive straight leg raising test is. So it, the same thing can be accomplished when you're seated. So if you, someone is sitting up, And then you straighten their knee, their leg. That's essentially performing the same test as someone lying down. So that's where it's put in as irreproducible. You have someone lying down, you lift their leg, and they complain of leg pain. And then you sit them up and do the same maneuver, and they don't have any pain. The the common way that's done is you tell someone you're going to examine their knee. So you move their knee up and down. So when you straighten your leg, you're essentially performing a straight leg raising test at 90 degrees. But
1: the patient doesn't know it
2: patient doesn't know. It doesn't say anything. Now, in a true straight leg raise, if someone has a disc herniation and you're examining their knee and you straighten their leg to 90 degrees, they say, geez, I've got the same numbness pain coming down the leg and in my calf and in my foot. And that's what a straight leg raising test is. If you see straight leg raising test positive for back pain, that is not a positive straight leg raising test. Straight leg raising test has nothing to do with low back pain. Okay. It only has to do with leg pain and leg pain into the calf and into the foot below the knee.
1: And that's in the presence of a disc herniation. It would have no uh meaning or wouldn't produce pain for back strain?
2: Well, that's 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 the design, I mean, and it really has to be a big straight I mean a big disc herniation. I mean the chance of this test being positive. I I've, obviously I do knee surgery now, but I've done plenty of back surgery. Let me tell you, it's the rare disc that's so huge that you're going to really have a positive straight leg raising test.
1: All right. What are some of the other Waddell signs?
2: Some of the other Waddell signs, we see a lot of dithering or cogwheeling, and that's used a lot in the knee where someone, well, for instance, I'm going to tell you to go bend over and touch your toes, and you're standing up straight, you bend 10 degrees, you stop, then you bend another 10 degrees, you stop, and another 10 degrees. In other words, that's a cogwheel. So cogwheeling or dithering, as it's uh, referred to, is one of the tests that we see. Um, Another test would be if your whole arm or whole leg is numb.
0: That's
2: called stocking.
1: Yeah. That doesn't
2: happen because anatomically you have so many different dermatomes that involve the neck a correction, the arm and the leg, that you're not going to have stocking glove um, numbness. Yeah. And other tests, well, you know, it's funny, you rotate their shoulders and their hips together, that's pain unsimulated rotation. The back doesn't move at all with that, but if they complain of back pain, that's a positive test. And, um, you know, basically the only other one would be overreaction where you're, um, you know, you just touch someone lightly and they grimace or they fall to the floor. Sometimes they do it themselves. You know, if someone points into their lower back and pushes on their back and then collapses to the floor, that's overreaction.
1: All right. So let's take it the next step. Somebody, uh, a patient or a, an examinee uh, reports four of the eight, five of the eight uh, maneuvers as producing pain when it shouldn't. And what is the number of positive Waddell responses that would lead to a conclusion? We'll get to what that conclusion is in a minute. But
2: Waddell uh, wrote a paper. He, he followed up his original paper, which I think was 1980, and subsequently published that three or more of these signs have to be positive to make the diagnosis of symptom magnification, because in normally in people, one or two may be present in people with true disease. So three or more of these eight signs... Should be present according to Waddell's follow up paper in order to um, sit, and it's not a diagnosis, it's a sign symptom
1: magnification is okay. present. Now, symptom magnification to a layman would be exaggeration of symptoms, and I can see how somebody might make the leap from that to. Um, a term like malingering, but in reality, what does it really mean in terms of whether somebody does or doesn't have a condition that is an impairment to work?
3: Well,
2: it's exactly right. It's just simply a notation that this person may have non-organic signs or may have an underlying psychological component. Correctly, if, if a doctor is going to testify that someone is a malingerer, that's a psychological diagnosis, and would, and, he would, and he really should undergo a psychological evaluation in order to make that diagnosis. An orthopedic surgeon, by training, is not equipped to make the diagnosis of malingering. That's a psychiatric diagnosis.
1: And you mentioned uh, one or more follow-up papers written by Dr. Waddell. Tell us, if you can, what he addressed in those papers in terms of the way the legal profession, the way fact-finders and adjudicators have been interpreting or misinterpreting uh, Waddell signs in reaching conclusions that might affect somebody's monetary benefits.
2: Well, you would probably know that better than me, being an expert in the field as a lawyer. But from my general knowledge as an orthopedic surgeon, it's been overused too much, number one, in making a psychologic diagnosis when that's not what it's for, and then not utilizing all the signs. In other words, if you're going to do Waddell's testing and if I'm going to do that, I, you should list all the eight Waddell's signs and whether each one was positive or negative. You just can't pick three. Uh, just list three. And I see that all the time in the reports, and I think that's suspect. They put axial loading, this and that, but they really should put down the ones that are negative as well. Do all eight and say whether each one is positive or negative.
1: Now, um, what other tests or uh, maneuvers would an IME perform, let's say in a back case, uh, to rule in or rule out a particular problem?
2: Well, there there are some, you know, everybody has their own different ways of doing tests. I mean, the problem is if you're just looking as to a soft tissue injury, there really aren't a lot of tests that you're going to do that um, are going to make any real difference. Because, you know, anybody who's had a soft tissue injury knows that predominantly it's pain, muscular spasm, uh, warmth. I mean, these are all signs of soft tissue injury, and these are these are tests that sometimes you can find on the lower back. But many times, you, and we've all injured our lower back, and we know that really none of those signs are present, but you have a real problem. So, But, you know, you will generally note the findings of muscular spasm, which are very variable, and warmth in the area or obvious swelling. But frankly, most of those things are absent. When you're doing a low back exam, a lot of times what you're looking for is neurologic involvement, say, from a disc herniation or disc or irritation. So what you do is you see reflex testing at the knees and the ankles. And, and that's actually a very good test, but it's advanced nerve root damage, in other words, you need motor damage to the nerve root, which is fairly advanced, and what happens is you lose your reflexes, the knee reflex, which you can, and that's very objective because you can't stop that from happening or not happening, that's actually the L4 nerve root, so a disc herniation between L3, L4, pressing on the L4 nerve root, you'll lose your, or have a diminished knee reflex. The more common disc herniation is L5, S1, And that's your S1 nerve root, which is your Achilles reflex. And then the last test you do is you test your, your big toe. And if you can't hold your big toe up against resistance, that's the L5 nerve root controlled by the L4, L5 disc. Actually, I'm old enough to remember in the old days, before there were MRIs, we didn't really want to subject people to the standard test at that time, which was a myelogram, where you'd have to put dye in. So the clinical diagnosis of a disc herniation was actually a lot more important than it is now. Now, all it's used to refer to as clinical correlation because you get MRIs now where everything's positive, and they just try to figure out whether the MRI is clinically correct or not.
1: Yeah. And uh, I've also been around before uh, we had MRIs, and since um, the enhanced diagnostic methods that are available, we are, at least in my practice, I have clients come in to see me, and they'll call me, and they say, I had my MRI, and bad news. The doctor said, I've got a bulging disc. Right. Now, uh, I think we all have bulging discs as we age. What is the importance of a bulging disc and how is that uh, relevant to an examination?
2: Well, a bulging disc is sort of a misnomer. The problem what people think about, there's, it's been misconstrued between a bulging disc and a disc protrusion. A bulging disc, in truth, is what it should be, would be, if you think of your disc, it's hard to do over, the, over, the, uh, over an interview like that, but your disc space is actually composed of two things. You have the annulus fibrosis, which is the bark of a tree, and the sap inside is, or is, the, is the nucleus propulsus. That's actually the material that herniates. So as you age, this, this material inside degenerates and becomes uh, thinner. So the bones become closer together. When the bone become, bones become closer together, the vertebral bodies, the annulus bulges outward circumferentially, sort of like the Michelin man's gut. So when you have circumferential outpouching of the annulus fibrosis, that's been referred to as a, as a bulging disc. It's not that there's more pressure inside the disc, you know, pushing this stuff outward. It's actually a result of the vertebral bodies coming closer together. So that's actually a degenerative condition and not related to trauma.
1: Okay, that was my question. And uh, in terms of the production of pain?
2: Well, there's, there's not a lot of indications that produces any pain. For instance, you only can have pain where you have pain fibers. So if you look at where do you have pain in your lower back? Well, you do have pain at the facet joints because that's arthritis. So, so the facet joints you can get pain from. You can get pain from the outer third of the annulus. Pain fibers are present in the annulus fibrosis. And that's why a lot of people feel now that these annular tears that you now see on an MRI could be a, a, a significant source of pain generation because you have pain fibers. But there are no pain fibers inside, inside your disc material. If you go in, if I could snake a needle into the middle of your disc space and play around with your nuclear material, you'd have no pain whatsoever. There are no nerve fibers.
1: Well, I'd prefer you not do that anyway. But I know.
2: Many people do not like that.
1: All right. You know, I've been collecting comments from clients over the years about their IME, and I'm going to give you the most frequent complaints that I get. Uh, I, th- I think the most frequent one is the the exam lasted a couple of minutes, uh, that uh, he made me stand up, bend over, hit my knee with a little hammer, and said goodbye. Right. Or the doctor was rude, doctor wouldn't let me explain, wouldn't answer my questions, yelled at me why I'm not working, Etc. How long should an actual comprehensive physical exam for, let's say, a low back injury take?
2: Well, you know, and, and I'm asked that all the time. It's very, very simple to do an exam in 5 to 10 minutes. That is just a physical exam. It really is. And, I, you know, we do it all. It's like we do it all the time. You can have someone bend. You do range of motion, palpation, reflex testing, sensory testing. If you don't want to make a big deal about it, you really should be able to do a good physical exam in 5 to 10 minutes. The history, if you want to do that, takes longer. Generally, a good history is 10 to 15 minutes. But I really do feel, and I don't make my living doing IMEs, so I'm not the type of person that's going to you know, spend longer than necessary just to make it look good on paper, that I think 20 minutes for the history and physical, unless it's a very complicated case. No, that's for a routine low back exam. That's fine. What takes a lot of time a lot of times is the review of records if they're voluminous.
1: And I was going to ask you that question. I'm glad you brought it up. What is your practice and what do you think is the best practice? I assume they're the same in terms of reviewing records that an insurance company sends you in advance of the exam. Do you read them first? Do you read them after the exam? Do you pay much attention to them at all?
2: You know what I generally do is look at the diagnostic studies. I don't a lot of times like to look at written stuff because there's a lot of stuff in there which I feel sometimes would be prejudicial or would be opinions that it would start putting stuff in your head that maybe you would... I'd rather be totally objective, impartial. But you would like to have an idea of what you're getting yourself into. So a lot of times what I do is when my staff um, organizes the IME chart, I have them put the diagnostic studies on top, and I look through them without looking at any cover letters sometimes or anything like that, just so I have an idea.
1: And do you prefer... Are you... Finding, for example, an MRI or a CAT scan report is sufficient, or do you think that uh, there's a need to see the actual films?
2: I'm always asked that question. You know, I—it's I, always a good idea to look at the actual films because it's just one less question you get asked by people like <laughs> by attorneys like yourself, and the, and a lot of times the insurance companies like it too. But the other thing that I really I really see, and I, and I think you have to look at that from a plaintiff's attorney standpoint, is that a lot of these. Um, MRIs, you have to see where, where it's being done. For instance, a lot of doctor's offices are getting MRIs done now and they're being read overseas, where it's digitally sent over to the Philippines and it's read by a radiologist over there. So I always tell when I give my lectures to both attorneys, defense attorneys and plaintiff attorneys, just because you see an MRI and the reading of it, if the reading hurts you, it may not be accurate. It may not even be read by a board-certified a radiologist. It may not, might not even be read in the United States. You want to find out where it's being, who's reading it? What are the credentials of the person that's interpreting it?
1: And speaking of tests, uh, I have seen a great increase in the frequency and use of functional capacity evaluations, so-called FCEs. Discuss for me, if you will, the relative importance of FCEs, their objectivity, their subjectivity, and their, their usefulness to you as an examining physician.
2: Well, I, I don't like them. I don't like them at all, and... Um, I mean, I, obviously, if I were a physiatrist and I was making money off them, I would order them because it comes back to your practice. But I've never really liked them. I, I, it's not done by a physician. It's done usually by a physical therapist, and they're fine. But I'm not sure physical therapists should be making determinations about whether someone should go back to work or not or whether someone's injured or not. And the other thing with the FCEs is, that, you know, there was, for instance, there was a, a study in Spine Magazine about, which is a reputable journal, 2004, which showed that there was actually a negative correlation between successful completion of an FCE and re-injury after going back to work. So a lot of times the insurance companies want them that if they pass a lot of their tests for an FCD, they're you know they're not going to be injured. It's safe for them to go back to work. But actually, that study showed the opposite.
1: Okay, at this point, I think we're going to take a quick break. Come back with Dr. Dave Cooper, uh, and after uh, we come back, we're going to talk about the case of the day as we put Dr. Cooper to the
3: test. We'll be right back. We hope you listen to one of our brand new shows here on the Legal Talk Network, In House Legal, with Attorney Paul Boyton experienced in all things in-house. If you're interested in the top issues, news, and trends inside the corporate legal department, you'll want to listen to In-House Legal. starts January 12th. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen now, download the show, or even better, subscribe to the RSS feed. It's free.
0: Workers' Comp Matters with attorney Alan S. Pierce is produced right here at the Legal Talk Network by a staff of professional news broadcasters. We're the only ones who can provide the best quality shows with the latest legal news, talk, and information in an interactive format you won't find anywhere else.
3: We're proud to tell you about a special legal podcast series called Legal Tips from the ABA Tort, Trial, and Insurance Practice section. It's all about creative approaches to old problems that arise in the practice of tort and insurance law. You'll hear about the Tips Leadership Academy, Diversity Initiatives, and plans for the TIPS 2009 Annual Meeting. Legal Tips starts in February, right here on the Legal Talk Network and the American Bar Association websites.
1: Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters, where we are discussing medical legal evaluations, the IME doctor, and what the exam means. Today, uh, I am with Dr. David Cooper, orthopedic surgeon, and we've been discussing the independent medical evaluation. Dr. Cooper, one of the uh, uh, features we have on Workers' Comp Matters is something I call Case of the Day, and I uh, selected a case I'm going to summarize for you and and ask your legal opinion. Okay. And the case that I'm going to talk to you involves uh, Lewis Querion versus Pizzotti Brothers, uh, a Massachusetts case. And Lewis was a worker for Pizzotti Brothers, and he tore the rotator cuff in a work accident. He collected Workers' Comp benefits under temporary disability for three years And he filed a claim for permanent and total disability. Now, in this case, the medical evidence was clear. He needed surgery. He was an excellent candidate for surgery. The surgery would be arthroscopic to repair a torn rotator cuff. And the surgery would likely restore him to employment status. Without surgery, everybody agreed he was definitely unemployable. At his hearing, the workers' compensation judge refused to order benefits because he refused to undergo the surgery. The case made its way to the appellate level, What do you think they did? Should Mr. Quarion be entitled to workers' compensation benefits in the face of his refusal to have rotator cuff surgery?
2: Well, knowing the outcomes of rotator cuff surgery, it's less likely that rotator cuff surgery is going to be uh, completely successful. Uh, My uh, my opinion would be that someone should not uh, be subjected to undergo roca- rotator cuff surgery.
1: Well, the court in Massachusetts and Massachusetts is uh, generally regarded rightly or wrongly as a somewhat liberal state when it comes to workers' comp. The appellate court upheld the rejection of his permanent benefits uh, because the evidence in this case indicated that this particular surgical procedure was not attended with any substantial risk of serious harm to life or limb. And that it was reasonably expected to be beneficial and that as a result, the insurer should not bear the cost of lifetime total disability benefits uh, for a refusal to undergo uh, surgery. I don't agree with that result. I don't think it would be the same result if it was a, a back surgery where you'd be going in and playing with uh, the anatomy of the spine with his nerves and risks of infection, paralysis, et cetera. But I suppose with any surgery, even rotator cuff, there are some risks. I...
2: Oh, it's not so much risk. It just doesn't work very well. Is this an older individual? This
1: yeah, this was an older individual. By the way, in the uh, Querion case, he did qualify for limited partial disability benefits, so he wasn't shut off altogether. But right. the courts I mean, seem I mean, to... What dis-
2: have you seen in rotator cuffs? All I've seen is people that get frozen shoulders, adhesive capsulitis, still with pain and never go back to anything more than light duty work with limitations on...
1: And I think that was the rationale for awarding partial disability. But it it, it, uh, is an interesting issue because I have clients come to me all the time. Um, I'm afraid of surgery. I don't like the risks that the doctor explained. And uh, the question is, are there benefits at peril if they refuse? I think the court was trying to say the simpler the procedure, the less risky it is, uh, the more likely that your benefits uh, or the degree of your benefits might be. Well, you know, it's very
2: rare people make a full recovery. I would argue differently if it was carpal tunnel surgery or even a partial meniscectomy because those are associated objectively with very good results. But I haven't seen a lot of 50-plus workers undergoing rotator cuff repairs that are very successful, certainly not in going back full duty, but limitations always seem to be uh, pretty much to sedentary or light-duty work. And so they're really no better off before, after the surgery than they were before.
1: Okay, as, as we wind up, Dr. Cooper, uh, let me ask you this question. It may not be a fair question, but can you be fooled by a, uh, an examinee? Can somebody fool you?
2: The only way I could be fooled would be if they give me a false history. I think I could be fooled by the history because I really have no way of determining whether they're being honest that way or not. But I don't think I could be fooled with, during the physical exam.
1: And in that regard, how do you regard, and I know some of your colleagues may have different answers, but the subjective complaints of pain, I've had some IMEs come back, I've seen some reports saying, I find no objective signs of continuing injury or disability, therefore this person is fit to return to work without restrictions, despite the fact that this fellow is just full of complaints of pain, discomfort, limitations of motion, etc. What role, if any, is the subjective nature of, of uh pain and, and the opinion of the examiners, whether somebody can work or not?
2: Again, it depends whether you're looking for subjective complaints of pain. For instance, the older workers, certainly we know people hurt from arthritis. But again, we're sometimes asked to differentiate. Have they fully recovered from, say, a uh, lumbar sprain strain? Yes, they have. Objectively, they recover, They can go back to work. But many times I will put in my reports that subjectively I do believe their complaints of pain to be true, I do find they have arthritis, which would limit them to, sed- to sedentary or light-duty work. So I differentiate between their work-related findings from the accepted work injury as opposed to the totality of their complaints if I find that person to be credible.
1: And one last on that vein, uh Over the years, I've seen either new diagnoses or new names to old diagnoses, Mm -hmm. but uh, you mentioned reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Uh, Otherwise, I think it's known as complex regional pain syndrome or CRIPS. What's what's your opinion as an orthopedic surgeon as to the validity, existence, and um, um, role of these diagnoses in workers' compensation cases?
2: Well, number one, a pain syndrome is never a diagnosis, to be quite accurate. For instance, a headache. It's not a diagnosis, but it's a symptom. What's your headache coming from? Is it coming from a stroke, a tumor? So when you say chronic regional pain syndrome, that's been referred to as a diagnosis, but it really isn't. So technically, it's just basically pain in extremity. Reflex sympathetic dystrophy is a true diagnosis because it refers to, at least in theory, the continuing firing off of the sympathetic nervous system causing vascular changes. So reflex sympathetic dystrophy is a legit diagnosis. Chronic regional pain syndrome, I would argue, from a truly medical standpoint, is a symptom, not a diagnosis.
1: As a symptom, nonetheless, does it have any anatomical basis? No. Is it indicative? It's, it's purely in
2: the, subjective.
1: But Well, if you have it, it's subjective. If I have it, it's subjective. It, it, might it be a disabling condition that is uh, a result of a traumatic injury?
2: I think that you can certainly have pain which goes unexplained, which is the true result of a traumatic injury. And I, I would say we all know we have headaches. We know headaches can be very disabling, but what's the cause of the headache? Many times the, headache is, the cause of the headache is never found out, but people have headaches. So I think with any subjective complaints, obviously in the right individual, it's going to have a real cause and would be related to trauma.
1: Well, on that note, I think we'll end our show. I appreciate your coming on today, Dr. Cooper from Pennsylvania. We hope you'll join us again for another Workers' Comp Matters show. Uh, Thanks for listening today. I'm Attorney Alan Pierce. Go out and make it a day that matters.
0: Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network. Hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other workers' comp matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk.